0: You are about to listen to an interview for EWS. Intending to provide educational information from various domains in psychology, physical exercise or motor learning, an experienced professional joins in a conversation with our founder, assisting EWS' mission of building a mindset and methodology that can optimize both sports performance and mental health. you enjoy and for that I leave you with your host Gonçalo Marques.
1: Hi there, Gonçalo Marques from here, the founder of VWS, and I'm very glad to premiere this interview series with a very enjoyable person. I admire him for considerable reasons and this introduction of him will probably not fill all of those but hopefully you'll get a sense on the next hour or so. So, our today's guest is probably one of my favorites to ever be casted in EWS. And prepare yourself, because this intro might get long. You can check the links in the description for what he brings on along. I'm thrilled to present you a 29-year-old guy from Lisbon. At such a young age, he has done and achieved a lot. Well, he is a psychologist, integrative psychotherapist, with this current clinical practice at ISPA. Closely linked with that, he also provides services of supervision to other therapists. Currently lectures in three teaching classes, also at the same college Ishpa. He also functions as an advisor on research projects and as a guide in master thesis. Moreover, at Ishpa, he is one of the coordinators for their Academy of Psychotherapists, a place where they invite renowned figures to give weekend workshops. More broadly, he is a member, editor and assistant for CEPI, the International Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Still on those realms, he is the director and host of the webinar series from SPR, Society for Psychotherapy Research. And if that wasn't enough, he owns a YouTube channel himself called Psychotherapy Expert Talks, with an accumulated number of over 150,000 views. There he interviews major personalities from the psychotherapy world, exploring their stories in their correspondent paths and going beyond the what is already laid out in theories, disseminating then knowledge that matters. Furthermore, he plays several instruments in a music band called No. And again, as if this wasn't enough reasons to spread his skills, which by the way I observed firsthand as an interviewer, therapist and musician, He counts with six papers published in the science world and dozens and dozens of public speaking appearances in conferences and workshops. Well, I met him on a lunch via my clinical supervisor at my college, FBUL, and readily felt his good and chilled mood. He has an energetic presence with an enjoying and comfortable charisma. He has an insurmountable amount of knowledge and combining this with an enviable ability to illustrate it and apply it responsibly and responsively, while maintaining a high level of curiosity to expand it, puts him in a place that for sure can assist anyone to efficiently work anything out. And I still would not be fine to end this without briefly presenting his current major projects. He can talk about those a bit more in a little while, but... He is engaged as an author and co-editor for the last year in APA's book series, The Essentials of Deliberate Practice. This is accompanied by a project being developed in the last couple of years with other major professionals in that field, from which he is the co-founder. This one is called Deliberate Practice Institute, currently providing opportunities and resources online for mental health trainees and licensed professionals. This is the main topic we will talk about today, but linking it more to the sports and physical exercise domains, more than the clinical side. And sure, I don't want to flatter him by telling more for now. He would be too humble to accept this next claim, but without further ado, I welcome to EWS this great fellow and master at several crafts, Alexandre Vaz.
2: Thank you so much, Gonçalo. That's really such kind words. Thank you. And congratulations on your project. It's very exciting. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so let's go to this do you is there something else that you want to add about you or the work
2: that you are doing uh you know the it's funny because you know i have a lot of heroes a lot of people that know me know that i have a lot of heroes like professional heroes such as musicians and mm-hmm. psychologists and researchers and i always feel more like a fan than anything else so when you like start listing the things that i do like my first feeling is like Yeah, but I'm mostly like a fan of other people's work (laughs) like I just love too many for example bands and musicians that Mm -hmm. in such a way that I had to do music myself and I just love too much psychotherapy and psychotherapy research in such a way that I have to do it myself. So it feels really nice to hear you do the introduction but I have to admit it feels a bit foreign to me it's like yeah but Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) not the main thing. (laughs) The main thing is Alex Vaj, the fan of all yeah. of those things.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that that was a, that is a characteristic that puts you on those paths to contribute to the world uh, sure. the way you want and doing the things that you enjoy, in music, listening to other people. So that's the one thing, and the best degree yet, may I say, to getting the path of mastery that we can get related yeah. to that.
2: Yeah, I think there is a, a fine line between obsessiveness and expertise. I think we can talk more about that. And I definitely have a, a slight obsessive vein in me.
1: <laughs> You're kind of a wizard that uh, can do something like multiply time and do so much. But I guess you are not sharing those uh, in this interview. The music part you mean? Uh, the whole of things of a wizard. Or you can't share those secrets. <laughs>
2: I mean, <laughs> you know, there's a friend of mine who sometimes jokes that I have, uh, uh, I, I must have a lot of clones so I can be in different places at the same time or do so many different things. Because the main two things that I'm interested in in life maybe is, is the, the whole delivery practice psychotherapy stuff that I'm into and the music part. Of course, there's also the social side which sometimes suffers from it and there's the dating side that sometimes suffers from it. But the main two things I think you covered. I honestly would not be able to do what I'm doing if I wasn't so enthusiastic. And when I'm feeling less enthusiastic or less productive, what I usually do is I go see or read other people's work. That's a common thing I found in myself is if I just work by myself, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it doesn't last a l- it can last for a while, but I have to then like get inspired. So, I'll have like papers or books or videos on the side whenever I need to go there, get excited. And it's kind of like a invisible conversation mm-hmm. because, like, most of my work is kind of responding to something else. It's just not usually a conversation that's being happening actually with the person. It's like I'll read this article and it's like, ah, oh, I have opinions about this. So, I'll start doing something kind of in response to this imaginary conversation.
1: So, you are balancing at the same time to work and produce and then to go back and uh, grab some more information and at the same time you do that internal work with yourself that is very great i think and uh, so let's uh, go on deliberate practice and jumping in that uh, production of yours i will uh, like to present you a little challenge sure if you had to encapsulate deliberate practice in just one minute how would you describe it I think deliberate practice is a uh, interesting. So I'm going to give
2: almost an academic academic answer first. It's it's probably one of the most research based ways we know to reliably increase anyone's skill acquisition. So let me say that a different way. Uh, deliberate practice is a is a set of principles that probably probably will help you. Get better at something quicker. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a it's a kind of a rigorous but flexible kind of set of principles that the more you follow, the more more probable it is that you actually learn something. Now it's a training method or training methodology that can be applied to anything, to learning how to cook, learning how to dance, learning how to play chess, learning how to do psychotherapy. Um, so it can be applied to anything, but. It, but it is quite a disciplined thing. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: And uh, inside that discipline part, um, I get that is a practice that you do that um, focus on the internal experience of the, the people that engage in deliberate practice, whatever the field. And uh, may you bring that idea of the reaction form that you developed?
2: Yeah, yeah. so I've been working a lot in the context of psychotherapy, so how to apply the practice to psychotherapy, and, but this applies also to other professions, is that if you're training any skill, uh, you can't weave out the internal experience of the person who's training, mm-hmm. because the emotions that come up and the urges and the thoughts that come up as you're trying to practice something actually are very important. And if you're not monitoring that, um, usually the practice will get worse. So let me give you an example. In anything that we do that's uncomfortable, like out of our comfort zone, very common that we start getting like self critical or ashamed or just uh, demotivated, demotiv- mm-hmm. sorry, unmotivated. Yeah. Um, so if, 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 The way your training doesn't think about that, it's very probable that you'll give up training (laughs) that way after a while. So it's very important that we monitor the reactions that the trainee is having to kind of find a secure way to incorporate that. And honestly, to kind of have a a compassionate look at training. Because if that Mm -hmm. piece isn't there, uh, what happens is training disciplinely can become a very authoritarian Mm. aggressive Mm. thing you know Mm. and we certainly have a lot of historical examples where training becomes this authoritarian thing where the trainee is getting massacred (laughs) by the teacher you know and in a lot of in some cases unfortunately it produces great results you know we have virtuosos that have parents that had them trained in a certain way for years and they became geniuses Mm. but probably that's not the majority (laughs) of people who are abused in that way, uh, most of us need a, a safe space to
1: train. Yeah, so cool. So much to unpack there. Uh, I, it stuck with me the part of the compassion with oneself in uh, those paths of learning. And uh, that's why I wanted in this conversation to speak about the psychological and emotional mechanisms that are involved and often disregarded somehow. And uh, yeah, that's uh, absolutely important to address. And um, so that reaction form uh, is uh, like a monitoring. Uh, yeah. That yeah, it's a monitoring piece that you have. Yeah. So my Tony, co- uh,
2: my my colleague Tony Romanieri, he uh, developed this uh, reaction form. That's to be used specifically for psychotherapists, but I guess you can use it for other uh, delivery practice professions which is a very, very simple thing. It's basically asking, you know, uh, how hard is it to do the practice that you're doing? How emotionally arousing is it? And then it kind of asks for specific reactions that you're having. So for example, specific thoughts you might be having as you're trying to train, specific emotions, specific urges. Now the problem is if you don't monitor that, what happens is very quickly an exercise can become either too easy or too hard, and i guess that's one of the main things about the deliberate practice research is it kind of says a very common sense thing that we tend to forget is that we we only really learn something if we're on a very specific zone of challenging but not overwhelming yeah so this is a very important thing because a lot of the practice that we do if it's not monitored It's either too easy, like we're training something that we can already do very well, so we're not really learning anything, or it's too hard and we're not really learning anything as well because we're just flooded with anxiety, self-criticism, we can't do it in any way. So actually, most learning happens in this little window uh, of challenging but not overwhelming.
1: Yeah, like that frontier of the our comfort zones. And that fits very well with the flow model of Csikszentmihalyi. And, uh, yeah. and it can be linked uh, both at performance levels and both at the learning processes one has. Yeah.
2: I mean, you have a psychology degree, so you know there's this definition of the zone of proximal development by Vygotsky. So it's very much to do with that, is that there is a, an optimal zone where we can develop and grow. And... The problem is, if if you train in anything without thinking about this, it's kind of up to luck, <laughs> you know, to know if you're in that optimal zone or not. But if you train in a way that you're actually paying attention to that, it's much more probable that your training is going to help you. Yeah,
1: that's the piece of the word deliberate. Yeah, exactly. In the practice, exactly. And bringing it to the practice, by the way, uh, one may think and often hears that. Um, Repeat and repeat, repeat is the way to go and improve at anything. But that conscious part that you are talking about is very important. Oh yeah, first of all, you can repeat the same bullshit and it's still bullshit, mm-hmm. right?
2: So just repeating in of itself <laughs> gives very little to anyone. Now it's it's like, what are you repeating? How are you repeating it? When are
1: you repeating it? Those things are the most important. And at the same time, how one is feeling and how can one get feedback yeah. from others, from other experts, from the experience of the body in some uh, running technique, in some passing, in some shooting technique? That's something that's very, <coughs> very clear, you
2: know, very conscious within the this whole deliberate practice thing. You know, the Anders Ericsson, the first guy who first researched on this, he's very clear about the need for a coach or a teacher or a supervisor. It's really... I, I don't want to say impossible but it's near impossible to do delivery practice just by yourself. It is possible and, and actually the majority of delivery practice is solitary delivery practice because most of the time we spend is alone, practicing alone. But that practice alone uh, actually is informed by a teacher or trainer giving you feedback. So for example, as you already said, I, I trained in different musical instruments. Yeah. Bring that on. So you know what happened was uh, I would go to my teaching class. So for for example, I was taught in uh, guitar. Okay. So um, I would get feedback on what I was doing wrong with my fingers, for example, and I tried repeating the right way to do it with my teacher. But then I would go home and have to practice that right way to do it repeatedly. You know, Mm -hmm. and most of my practice time was spent at home, me by myself. Practicing this skill, but the skill I was practicing and how I was practicing it was informed by the teaching I had gotten from this teacher, right?
1: So one has a aim to go for?
2: Yeah, so there's an, a clear aim and that's actually one of the the core criteria for deliberate practice is that you have to have, have, have very concrete small learning goals. That's that's one of the main things. Like having abstract,
1: vague goals yeah. really doesn't help anyone. Yeah. The, the importance of measuring one's steps. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and uh, let's bring another scenario here. Maybe it will be a little challenging for you, but uh, you can tell afterwards on a scale of one <laughs> to ten <laughs> well, the how do you feel. Assessment. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so let's go. Um, we could pick. A hundred youngsters and they would all grow in the same conditions with the same educators and practice the same amount of time per week. At any set of skills, they were in a mission to improve upon and you can pick one there. What do you think it would differentiate the best ones from the average and from the worst ones, by the way, in five to ten years later? Okay, it's a good question. I mean... Let's all imagine that they're all training for
2: the same thing, like becoming a professional violin player, okay? Now, it is important to say that a piece of the variance, so part of the percentage of what will define the best and the worst, is temperamental. So I don't want to give the impression that it's all up to practice, that would be a lie. A a good part of it can be trained, but there's always a percentage where people come into it better than others. you know, that's also an interesting topic in and of itself because we kind of have these two split narratives in our society. Either people have natural talent, you know, and whoever is good already was good anyway or had that natural talent, or we have the narrative that like everything is practice and discipline. Actually, of course, it's a both and thing. So some people are clearly better than others, but then you can train on that. So to answer your question, 10 years from then, part of it would have to do uh, with natural environmental, uh, char- sorry, natural born characteristics of the people. Mm-hmm. So that's the part we can control.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The part that we can control, I think the people who would benefit the most over time would be the people that would fi- follow the principles of the lower practice. Mm-hmm. So no surprise to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the first would be to have ongoing observance of performance so that you'd actually be seeing them perform whatever they're trying to work on. So let me give you an example. If you're trying to get better at playing a musical instrument, okay, it's totally different to go to your guitar teacher and saying, yeah, I tried to play that thing and it was hard because my fingers hurt, blah, blah, blah. So what do you think I should do? Without showing you actually playing the piece. And then you have a second student who comes into the class, okay, let me show you, I'm having trouble with this song, so he really shows the teacher what he's doing with his fingers. This second one will probably get better results along the line because you're going to get feedback on the observed performance, not just on the vague self-report. So more, more observed performance would be important. And then the expert feedback, I think what would also differentiate, is how much of the expert feedback was tailored to that specific student. Meaning, was the teacher able to create exercises for the, the trainee, the student, that were challenging but not overwhelming for them, right? So have a very individualized kind of practice. I think those would be the two major things that
1: would... Yeah, and you demolish the part of the scenario there by saying individualize the practice for each one, so yeah. yeah, it's an important thing, maybe there's different timings for different people, so one teacher cannot be making the same training uh, all over again that, that, for everyone, it must be responsive. There, I, I Yes, totally, and you know, that's true for a
2: lot of things, and... For training, it certainly is very true. You know, there's a lot of people studying education, for example, who are against grading students, for example, or the whole rationale behind exams, for example, and they have good arguments for that, is that trying to teach people the same way, the same things, it, it's the best in terms of bureaucracy, because you can kind of put everyone through the same process but it's not the most effective way of training people. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the most effective way of training people is, like you're saying, more individualized, more tailored, but that also takes up more resources because, of course, again, you have to give individualized feedback for that specific student. So there's always this tension between trying to provide a training to a lot of people Mm -hmm. and making the training as available as possible to everyone but then having the resources to kind of give individual feedback to each student.
1: It's hard. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And bringing back to the internal parts of each uh, of those students, uh, the worst ones, may I say, um, how, what psychological components do you think might be there that uh, may hinder their processes? Do you think it's a matter of uh, persistence, uh, motivation of some kind? I think
2: persistence and motivation are kind of already an end point. I think what matters a lot of the time is how they are feeling and thinking about the practice itself while they're doing it, before and after they're doing it. So, for example, if a student is flooded with anxiety or shame or self-criticism while doing training, it's very likely that they'll start not wanting to train. You see what I mean? So it's, it's very, if, if, if we're not careful with what feelings are coming up, what thoughts are coming up, and if we don't kind of provide kind of a secure base for those students, a lot of them will drop out of training or they'll just become unmotivated. So I think the, the students that will benefit the least from training are the ones who feel less safe, who feel that the training that's being provided to them is not tailored to them, so it's either too easy for their skills or too hard for their current skills, and also that the feeling that they don't have enough uh, trust and safety on the teacher. Because if you have enough trust and safety with the teacher, you can say, listen, this is too hard for me, and you can adapt. But a lot of people you know, don't come into training scenarios having that kind of confidence and trust, right? So it's really up to the teacher a lot of the times to provide that safe space.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah something uh, was brought to mind by Eric Anders Ericsson and he was saying something in the lines of um, that uh, running training called interval running to improve top running speed. Uh, he was saying something like uh, this is biological and neurobiological stuff that I am not an expert in but the logic was that the more one trains that the more biochemicals would be released and uh, those could influence gene manifestation and uh, that would translate in new proteins and consequently increase bone diameter. I'm getting that uh, thing that you say a while back of the limits of the comfort zone and uh, this is applied directly into our bodies because at some point when we say that one can expand and... Uh, overcome their limits. It may be literal. So what do you think about this?
2: I think you know, it gets complicated because I'm much more, you know, the older I get (laughs) The more I'm interested in kind of this pragmatic wanting to see and monitor like change over time. So the whole part of like, you know, bone manifestation, neurochemical implications I find it incredibly interesting and at the same time I think it's like very preliminary in terms of research so I, cr- I can't really comment in terms of the specific mm-hmm. changes of training. Um, you know, we, we all want to believe that we are basically unlimited in potential. I don't believe that. I don't think the research supports that. I think that unfortunately I would never be able to be a professional basketball player just because I was not born in that way, Uh, there's a lot of research of, you know, certain kind of um, people who grow up in certain places being naturally structured to be, you know, better runners, for example. Um, This doesn't have to be a negativistic or pessimistic thing, because I do think that training does make a lot of difference, but I, I... I don't want to be this kind of naive, you know, stance and like, yeah, you can reach for the stars, like training will get you anywhere. Eh,
1: sure, sometimes. <laughs> so, changing the gears a little bit. Many times, a coach may find difficulties in working for change within an athlete's element of practice, not because of lack of potential or ability in him to achieve so, but because of something related with the athlete's will. So here a problem emerges of starting to engage in something new. Therefore, how do you think one can open up and stimulate a motivation for learning or changing? Some strategies come to mind. Here?
2: Yeah, no,
1: I have I have a mixed
2: comment, I guess. It kind of goes in opposite directions, and it, it, it's actually connected also with psychotherapy practice. But I won't go too much into it. <laughs> but yeah, the,
1: but let's let's resolve that <laughs> the best
2: way we can. Yeah, the the. The issue of motivation, I think, is a double issue because I think the trainer does have a role in it. But I think the student also has a role in it. What I mean by that is that I don't think that it's the teacher's role to totally motivate and engage the unmotivated student. So let me clarify. I think it's the teacher's role to keep the motivation and also increase the motivation that's already there. But I don't think it's kind of supposedly, ideally, it's not uh, the teacher's role to persuade someone to want to do something. So if you have like a student that really doesn't want to learn an instrument, I don't see it as the teacher's role to make him want to learn the instrument.
1: Yeah. So yeah, you're pinpointing uh, an important aspect that is to respect the the first and the actual motivation of the person doing that activity. The why is important, first of all, and the exactly, yeah. an end of all, maybe. Exactly,
2: and I do believe that the why is usually very personal. You can't fake a why, and you can't give your why to someone else. You can share your why, and you can inspire others, mm-hmm. but to, to try to fabricate a why in someone I don't think mm-hmm. is going to work. So that's just, you know, I, I do feel a need to say that piece first. Okay. Um, now, having said that, if you have a, a someone who already has a sense of motivation, already has a why.
1: Yeah. Or had, but is passing through a difficult time. Exactly. Then I
2: think it's a totally different story.
1: And I think you do want to monitor, like, what's their
2: current skill capacity? Like, what are they actually able to do and not do? I think that's the first question. And a lot of people maybe don't take the time into really finding that out. But to actually have a very clear sense, an honest sense of where you are in the map, you know, is the best way to get somewhere. You know, there's that joke that if you call someone and ask, you know, where do I get to place B? The first question that you're going to get asked is, where are you right now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So this, is, this has to do with the prices and training is I can't tell you how to get somewhere before I know where you are.
1: Yeah, great right?
2: point. So that's the first thing. So to motivate someone, we have to have realistic expectations of training, and to have realistic expectations, we have to know where they are right now. Okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing is we want to make sure that we kind of contextualize the unmotivation that they're having within a plausible frame of reference. So what I mean by that is we don't want to kind of say to the people, oh, you shouldn't Criticize yourself or you shouldn't feel ashamed, you know, because they'll feel ashamed and self-critical anyway, you know They'll just feel like invalidated basically So I think a much more effective way is kind of being this excited teacher That's like of course you're unmotivated of course you're self-critical because What was being proposed to you was not realistic? I think that's a much better way to approach students a much more compassionate way and also much more effective to motivate students to kind of give them the the right to have their feelings and contextualizing it in the system that might not be working for them
1: yeah that's such an important point because oftentimes we see coaches relentlessly insist on uh, hyper motivating the athletes and insisting on the practices that they are doing but sometimes they aren't adequate Sorry. to the, to that time and um, so it's important to get closer to the athletes and get closer to their experience and how one can adjust both the level of difficulty that is being proposed and maybe what's going on empathize more
2: exactly exactly so there are those two things are always happening at the same time the relationship between teacher and student so how trustful how safe it feels and the adjustment of the difficulty, the type of exercise, how it's being done. All those things are very important. And again, this fundamental piece of always validating the student's experience. You know, if they're mm-hmm. saying they feel like shit during the training, it's not our job to convince them you shouldn't be feeling like shit. You know? that's, because that's the pull. You know, it's very quick that we want to do that. And it's totally natural that we would want to do that. But unfortunately, it's probably not the best thing to do, yeah.
1: you know. And it's a matter that touches me a lot when I see those kind of things happening. When the next step there is when the player starts to believe that that's the way and something is wrong with him and he should insist. Maybe he's not working hard enough, so he's, maybe he's a failure and should stop. And uh, that's something that sometimes is oblivious to them, to the coaches, and may lead to uh, pre um uh, turning out of events that is bad. I do, you know,
2: I, I think that partly that might have to do with the fact that there are cases of geniuses, basically, that can tolerate incredible amounts of, I would say, abuse and an incredible amounts of challenge. And in those very specific cases, it might actually be effective to have that very aggressive teacher stance. I personally don't enjoy that stance, but I can understand that it might work. Yeah. But I do think that it will work for a very short percentage of people. And here's where you have to make a distinction. like, Are you wanting to teach the majority or are you wanting to teach the zero point one zero point zero 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 one percent
1: with the dream that that will work and i will found a genius or i will make a genius exactly
2: there's a good film on it quite
1: recent i remember though that the drum drama. guy exactly yeah. whiplash whiplash that's yes it.
2: exactly i have some problems with the movie itself but the, the representation of the movie has a story of abuse uh, I think it's a very well-played one. And the whole idea, the, you know, the obsession of the teacher with, you know, if I yeah. just
1: push and, people and, hard And enough. by the way, yeah. just to contextualize just a bit more, that's based on a real story with a young guy uh, wanting to be the greatest of all time in drum.
2: Right, exactly. So the reason I don't like the movie or that I'm afraid of its message is that it kind of idealizes the abuse, real, the abusive relationship in a way. It kind of you know it's kind of like at the end it all was worth it because now the guy is this genius drummer um so i do have the i do feel that it ha- does have a dangerous uh, perpetuates a dangerous mm-hmm. message which doesn't mean again that in some cases that does happen that you have an abusive teacher-student relationship that actually is very
1: productive yeah, and works on an end result of the amazing quality of performance but then some other important aspects are not taken into account and maybe the mental health is hindered so much i mean this
2: is why i was saying we have to make a distinction between are we talking about the majority
1: of us and increasing
2: performance on the majority or are we talking about the super absolute experts because if you you know i'm a a lover of biographies i read a lot of biographies it's one of my pet pleasures and, you know, when you read a lot of biographies from a lot of people who accomplished a lot, it's very clear that most of them are out of their fucking minds. Like, you wouldn't want to live like any of those people, basically, you know? The degree of obsessiveness that most of them have, like the most highly accomplished you know, painter, musician, scientist, or whatever it is, has such an absurd, radical level of investment and usually their family life love life whatever is totally destroyed by it and that's a, you know that's a choice we can all make i'm not making a claim that you can't choose to have that life mm-hmm.
1: but and it's always up to debate those uh, values the yeah? the uh, the way one values his values and is them
2: exactly exactly and i do think that you know people have and, sh- and should choose whatever makes sense to them Now, I do think that that's never going to be the case for the majority of people, you know, to to basically obliterate most of their lives for this one specific...
1: And by the way, on that movie also, the loving relationship of the guy gets destroyed. Right, exactly. So it's,
2: it's a good portrayal of that, right?
1: Keeping on these kind of issues, I bring here another scenario for you. Yeah. So let's imagine this. A player that is finding himself on a hard time with his soccer practice... Where he is moving up to the junior here in Portugal, that's about 17, 18 years old, and gets a sense that he is not getting picked up for the main team. So he gets demoralized, and he, as he knows, he will be playing less and wanted to be in that place very badly. Someday he is alone in the street and meets you on a walk. Shetting for a bit, he ends up knowing you are a psychologist and as kind and skillful as you are. Rapport and trust is sufficiently built. A little while back he heard about the possibility to get help from psychotherapy or a sports psychologist. And now he helplessly asks you for advice to fight for that place in the team. What would you say? I would say to first start with the why.
2: I would want to know why it's so important to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why he wants to do it. And the reason for that is not so much that I hear it and I know it, it's to make it more conscious for him.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Because most people, when they're engaged in something, they have a vague sense of why they're doing it. But if they spell it out, if they really like listen to themselves talk about why they want to do something, that can be very important. So I would start with the why. Mm-hmm.
1: And for sure, not jumping in to motivate him more or searching for the ways that he can join in or give up.
2: Yeah, I, I, you know, the more, as you know, I'm also a clinical psychologist, so I see people in psychotherapy and trying to motivate people is a very dangerous business. (laughs) Uh, And listen, one of my most interesting projects in terms of research is investigating persuasiveness. Uh, (laughs) Yes, so uh, persuasiveness, you know, it can sound like you're trying to convince someone of something. Usually it's the opposite, you know. I am not interested in becoming the person who's going to become the will of that person. Because what happens there is this kind of uh, weird dynamic where now I'm the rational will part of the person. And the only thing that's going to happen is I'm going to represent that part and the other person is gonna represent the part that doesn't want to do it. So I don't wanna be in conflict with the person. So I'm much more interested in the person having to experience the conflict within himself. And that means actually putting him in front of these two parts of him, the ones that feel motivated and and unmotivated. So going back to the example you are saying, I would want to start with the why. And then going back to what we said before, I would want to have a very realistic appraisal of what are his current capacities.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And based on that to see you know what's realistic to work, to aim towards, mm-hmm. how to do it. Uh, so again it comes the discipline piece, right? Yeah. But all that discipline piece presupposes that the person actually mm-hmm. wants to do it and that this way of working makes sense to the
1: person. So the why is the necessary starting point? I do think so. Yeah. And as you touched on that, on the psychotherapy world and uh, accompanying some people that are in suffering in uh, therapy and want to increase their quality of life and alleviate that suffering, um, how can a common person in this realm of sports or competitions of some kind struggling with something for quite some time be thrilled or find therapy, the therapy prospect uh, a good idea for him.
2: I think over time now, it's not completely gone, but I think the stigma of going to therapy is lessening. So I think it's it's getting more okay to go to therapy. And people are realizing that therapy doesn't mean you having to be schizophrenic. (laughs) So, you know, I, I do think, you know, it's kind of weird because I kind of dedicated my life to psychotherapy, but I think it's as good as anything else. What I mean by that is I think it's one of the most interesting cultural creations of the 20th century, meaning it's only one of a lot of ways to find meaning. And I do think psychotherapy is basically a meaning-making enterprise. Mm -hmm. So if you find it interesting and if you find someone with whom you can connect with and kind of co-create new meanings around your life and what you're doing, I think it can be incredibly transformative. I don't think it's for everyone and I don't think it has to be for everyone. I think people get the same health benefits out of sports, relationships, the church, uh, cooking. Uh, I'm very integrative even in this way.
1: And that touches on the point that I want to transmit with EWS. Uh, It's important, by speaking in therapy, some types of messages or instructions. Well, that's not it, therapy. And with EWS I want to um, kind of get to the underlying processes that can uh, influence one's practice and one's state of mind. It's important to increase self-awareness in people for these things and look at it properly and also this touches on a point of the plateaus when a person thinks he has nothing more to to improve or uh, gets to a team and uh, is not seeing any more improvement or not getting a fulfillment out of it how do you reconcile that
2: the way I see it is there's a lot of activities that we do where we don't mind reaching a plateau And this goes again to the issue of the why, why you're doing it. So, for example, I do a lot of music work, but I've reached a sort of plateau in terms of technical uh, expertise in some of the instruments that I play. And I could get better technically at those instruments, but I think I don't care about getting better than the plateau that I've reached. Meaning I take enough pleasure from it, from the level of expertise that I got. Right? So if you get like, good enough at something, a lot of people don't mind actually that plateau. Now, if you do want to go beyond that particular plateau, of course, again, we would go back to those principles that we described before. But this always has to do with why you want to do it. You know, do, you, do you really want to get better? Why do you really want to get better? And for a lot of people, for most activities that we do, we don't want to continuously get better. We want to get good enough. Mm. You know? That's an important distinction, I think. And for a lot of people, you know, you work for a while or you train something for a while and now you're good enough to keep doing it and it might give you pleasure and that's it. Um, but the idea of continual improvement, I think, you, you basically can only commit, I think, to maybe one tops two of those things mm. in your life, I guess.
1: Yeah, and maybe uh, an important differentiation to do there. Uh, is around the improvement part of a specific skill because I may be talking about improvement by improving in the game of soccer uh, broadly. Uh, What I mean by that is that okay, maybe I am effectively enough and I'm bringing good results to my team by being a central back and not uh, letting the forwards pass by so I don't have to train more, more, more my... disarming technique but um, being able to read uh, another possibilities of the game and uh, having that flexibility of knowing what to work upon maybe not with that uh, aim that we you were talking about of continually improving there but having an attentive eye at at all times And maybe this uh, was an idea that you touched on about the support and stretching balance. It's kind of an art of uh, being able to give support to an athlete, stretching him to look upon other ways to improve or other ways to train.
2: Yeah, I I do think that being a teacher is very different from being a practitioner. They are really two different jobs. What I mean by that is, for example, I can be a mega effective psychotherapist, which I'm not saying that I am, but you can be that and be a shit psychotherapy teacher. But you can also be a great psychotherapy teacher without being particularly effective yourself as a therapist. These are actually two different skill sets. I think that's important because a lot of times we presuppose that the people that are good at a certain job are the best people to teach that job. And that's actually not what the research says, mm-hmm. you know, it's actually two different jobs and the, the, the skills that you need to be a good teacher sometimes don't overlap with the profession itself.
1: Yeah, preaching is one thing, performing is another. Exactly. And um, about ways of improving, one can think about the required or maybe not required, you tell me, so ability to be vulnerable, to look at one's frailties. And uh, I remember here also a topic that Tony Romes Manier talks about, a colleague of yours, to aim for failure. Yeah. <laughs> right. How do you reconcile that? That's your point?
2: I think I think the little practice is failure facing. What it means is actually you have to be very comfortable with failing. And if you're only comfortable with not failing, you're probably not going to get better <laughs> yes. because When we say that the difficulty has to be challenging but not overwhelming, what challenging means really is you're going to fail a lot (laughs) and you have to be kind of okay with that. And everyone knows this at some level, like if you try to ride a bike, learn how to ride a bike, you remember falling off or not being so good at it. right? So a precondition for getting better at something is being Mm -hmm. bad at something, is the ability to be bad at something. Now, the people who don't get better are the people who cannot tolerate being bad at something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it also has to do with how you interpret the not being bad. So if if you're bad at something, if your performance is not good at something, and if that creates a lot of shame, anxiety, or you start thinking, maybe I'm bad at this, that's probably not going to be very helpful. I would suppose that people who... Can tolerate the bad performance and actually get better, are the ones where they don't criticize themselves too much. They don't make global assessments of themselves. So, for example, I can be shitty at doing something, but it's not like I'm a shit person, you know, mm-hmm. or a shit professional in general. Important distinction. There. Yeah, very important distinction. Um, I learned this from actually one of my late, uh, one of my oldest psychotherapy heroes. Uh, Mm -hmm. Albert Ellis. Mm -hmm. So Albert Ellis was a psychologist New Yorker who made a a big distinction between conditional and unconditional acceptance. Mm -hmm. And what he meant was it's okay for us to have a very uh, specific kind of negative assessment of particular behaviors and thoughts and emotions that we might have. So like it's totally fine and, and adequate and good that we can say, well, this behavior is not really good for me, or I'm not doing as much as I should, or this thought, for example, is actually kind of irrational. So being very particular in that can be incredibly helpful. The problem is, as humans, we jump from conditional to global assessment, Mm -hmm. meaning it's very quick for us to go from I'm bad at doing this to I'm bad in general. And so he was very, you know, uh, he has a lot of books and articles arguing against global evaluations. So basically, Albert Ellis said that any global evaluation that you did, like I'm this, you're that, the world is this, mm-hmm. was always going to be basically unhelpful. Unhelpful or... and unrealistic. Unrealistic, exactly. And that has stuck with me for many years. I think I owe a lot of mental health. due to Albert Ellis (laughs) and that
1: and and when we speak uh, about uh, unhelpful and unrealistic unfortunately that accompanies a normal process that occurs in people and that's why the relationship with failure and the way one looks at failure and the way one can transform that view of failure being a necessary uh, experience to pass upon those paths of mastery it's an incredible point to look at And having a teacher constantly telling you, yes,
2: it makes perfect sense that you're feeling this way, so let's find a better way to work with you, is such a great antidote to not, you know, get overly self-critical.
1: And not getting the player in the place of overgeneralizing to his inside, him as a person. And that's a, yeah, great antidote, great idea there. Because sometimes athletes have also their identity very much attached to their athleticism and their results and uh, looking at the processes and not so much valuing the results they are good, they are pleasant they are all of those things that bring uh, joy and uh, security and all of that but not being the fundamental thing is an important point do you think that? what's your take? I mostly agree I do
2: think that you know, there's a big argument to be said that what matters is the results, so you have to be careful with the process. I, I have a couple of reactions. Um, you know, it's it's curious because having global assessments of yourself and tying up your identity with your, your profession is for sure negative when it's working out badly, but it's, it's less clear when it's working out well, meaning... If you have some genius musician or professional at whatever, and their identity is very tied up with what they're doing, and they're very good at it, you can argue that having that identity tied up is is okay and maybe even beneficial mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. So I guess what we're speaking is mostly when it's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. Yeah. Now. Again, this uh, being repetitive, this does go back to the why, to the why you're, why you're doing it, mm-hmm. you know. And, and this is a hard question for a lot of people. You know, I see a lot of people in psychotherapy who, who feel they don't have a why. And, and this is one of the core, you know, uh, problems with a lot of people, like the good existentialists have talked about for many decades, is this lack of a core sense of meaning or direction. Uh, you could argue that that's one of the fundamental you know, pillars of a life, you know, of mental health. And so it's very easy for me to say, well, ask the why. But for some people, that's in and of itself, that's a core problem or issue they have to work through. Hmm.
1: Okay, Alex, to end, what would be the main tip that you'd give someone on a path of mastery for getting the most adaptive and efficient learning besides DP? deliberate practice.
2: I think the best advice I got on it was from my late friend Jeremy Saffron because mm-hmm. I asked him something kind of similar to what you just asked me and he said that it's important to try to connect and collaborate and get to know as many people as you can that genuinely inspire you and genuinely do something that makes sense to you. So try to stick with people who you find that at the time know something or can do something that you can't and that seems to excite you. Now, those people will probably change over time, you know? Uh, and that's okay. You can collaborate with something, someone for a while and learn what you have to learn and move on. But I think that's a very solid piece of advice is surround yourself with people that you find put the bar at a higher level that interests you.
1: Hmm. Cool. Alex, how can people reach out to you and where they can see your work? There is a website, actually, that's my name, alxandrovash.com,
2: and mostly for psychotherapists, but it's connected with all this deliberate practice kind of stuff, so if they want to contact me, my contact is there and I'm happy to talk
1: the links will be in the description and uh, thank you very much for joining us Alexandre thank you
2: and congratulations again on the project thank
1: you, mm-hmm.
0: thank you for listening to this EWS interview to see more go to ewsport.eu. If you want to open up a discussion about some topic addressed, reach out by commenting below or leave a message at ewsport.eu. Hope you enjoyed. See you on the next one.